1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Not who you were expecting, am I? Well, I'm afraid that can't be helped. You see. Stephen's indisposed at the moment. He's such a hard worker. The rest of us here at Tales to Terrify decided it was time for him to take a little break. Get some R&R for a couple of weeks. So your host for this week is me, Drew Sebastiani. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if I confess to October being my favorite month of the year... I'd be in good company right now. It's the quintessential autumn month. The encroaching darkness and the colors and scents of the year decaying into winter. Halloween aside, it's not really surprising that it's the month of the year that brings out the spook in all of us. Personally, a good movie is one of my favorite ways to celebrate the time of year. I've already been to see It, which Stephen discussed last week. But I'm looking for your help here. I'm on the fence about Mother. On the one hand, the trailer. That retro vibe, the clear callbacks to some of the classics of horror. But on the other hand, I don't always enjoy horror movies or movies in general that try too hard to take themselves seriously. That are excessively cerebral or too hard to get anything out of in the end. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Prometheus. I'd love to get your take on it though. Did you see it? Would you recommend it? If you've got a sec, let us know on Twitter or Facebook if you think it's worth checking out. I'd also be curious to hear if there's anything else you're looking forward to this scare season. There's a few that I'm cautiously optimistic about. The Groundhog's Day meets Final Destination vibe of Happy Death Day looks like it might actually be pretty fun. Maybe. And while I'm skeptical, I'd love for Jigsaw to recapture some of the real tension, suspense, and intelligence that made the original in the series so great. Is that really too much to ask? Although, let's be honest. If there is one movie sure to have you checking closets and hiding under covers, my bet's on My Little Pony. Oh, how terrifying. Well, now that I've got you in the mood, Time for some fiction. Sam Schreiber is a writer living in Brooklyn, New York. His work previously appeared in such markets as Podcastle, Analog Science Fiction and Fact, and Martian Migraine Press. He's also one of the hosts and editors of the speculative fiction podcast The Kaleidocast, which features, among other things, short horror stories from such authors as Mike Allen, Nancy Hightower, and Tim Pratt. You can find Sam on Twitter at Azymandias and the Kaleidocast at Kaleidocast underscore NYC. You'll find both of those in the show notes. And now, children of the night, please join me for Sam Schreiber's Viscera.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: David is a graduate student, a little south of 30. With the beginning of a paunch he could probably lose if he put in the effort. Brunch dates at Lexington Brass and cocktails on the Upper East Side Probably aren't doing him any favors on that front. But I want to see if he'll turn into a pumpkin and run home to Williamsburg. It isn't until after he's kissed me that he asks if I don't need to work in the morning. Your beard tastes like Jameson, I say over the bustle of the bar. You look better without it in your profile. It's an old picture, David admits, dabbing his whiskers with a napkin. I should probably take it down off the website. We talk a little more. There's an awkward moment when I confuse him with another date from earlier in the week and ask him about the masters in comparative literature he's working on. David politely tells me his thesis is in neuroscience, which I decide I like better. I wait until Friday night to text him my address. My grandfather owned a unit above a butcher's, too, David tells me from the couch as we sip red wine. Here in Crown Heights, family business. I don't tell him a beer's halal meats folded years ago. I probably should have taken the signs down, all things considered. So meat runs in your family? I ask, smiling. David tells me he's been trying to cut it from his diet. I ask him if it's worked, and he tells me it hasn't. I get into little arguments with myself, David says, but I always lose, you know i tell him i do then he tells me Solmaz is a beautiful name he doesn't mention that i don't look especially persian with my coppery hair and freckles but i can tell he's wondering if there's a story there he's irritatingly gentle at first but receptive to encouragement there turns out to be a reasonably solid core beneath the softer flesh of his body. His flab, I decide, is simply the price of caffeine-fueled nights pouring over the intricacies of the human nervous system. Charming in its way, I resist the impulse to slit his throat right then and there. He drapes an arm over my body and says my name a little while after we finish, but my attention is elsewhere, against my tongue, my skin, and the deeper parts of myself not entirely analogous to human anatomy. David's essence is only slightly burnt around the edges. I close my eyes in concentration there are men with nothing but a smoky husk of a soul by the time they reach David's age, but there's something tantalizingly rich beneath the surface of his. Wonder, perhaps, or a streak of willfulness. I should be cautious. For all his succulence, there's a dangerous vitality as well. I've seen it before, and it's proved troublesome every now and then. I could say good night, lose his number, and still have time to chase down a safer, feebler meal. I could, but I decide opening my eyes and smiling. I'm in the mood for an adventure. I've had some practice slipping in and out of the mainframe of the website where David and I met. Deleting the cached lines of code characterizing our interactions takes only minutes. His phone records are harder, but by the time I'm finished, there's nothing left to point anyone in my direction. None of this used to be necessary, but one adapts. So Maz, Are you there?' David calls out. "'Where am I? Why can't I see?' "'He's been shouting my name for some time now. "'He's likely to go into shock if I don't say something soon.' "'Those are difficult questions to answer, David,' I tell him. "'He hears the sound of my voice from every direction,' yet somehow no direction at all. I unlock the door leading downstairs and walk down the wooden steps. He hasn't asked why he can't move. Somas, he says, fighting panic. We don't know each other very well, and I don't know what it is you don't want me to see. But whatever it is, I promise... David's words trail off as he realizes there's nothing he can promise me. It's just that I can't take it much longer. I need to see, he begs. It's cold outside, and there are only a few short steps to the back door of the empty butcher's shop. Still. All right, David, I say. That's fair. I give David my sight, let him sense the night air on my skin, and hear the rustle of leaves in my ears. He isn't in any state to notice the long, straight hair against the nape of my neck, or the unfamiliar press of breasts and hips against my clothes, let alone other more fundamental differences. I'm sorry, I tell him. That's all you get for now. No! He shouts as I turn his world black again. David calls me a few unpleasant names as I walk through the butcher's shop. Nothing I haven't been called before, although there are a few creative variations on a theme. David I cut him off mid-curse as I slide open the freezer door. There's something else I need you to see. Something about the tone of my voice robs him of his anger and replaces it with dread. I've changed my mind, he finally tells me. "I I don't need to see anything. Yes, you do. I'm going to show you and then it's going to be a little while before we speak again. I allow David my sight. His scream throbs behind my eyes, like a migraine. Words fail him, possibly because he realizes he no longer has lips or a tongue to form them. But his despair takes on a pitch all its own. I wish I had known just how much discomfort I could have inflicted on my own captor seventy years ago, when I'd been shown my own body hanging upside down in a grungy meat locker, my ankles pinned together with a metal hook. I would have never given him a moment's peace. I try to treat my meal's cadavers with more dignity, cleaning the incisions across their throats laying their hands flat over their chests. It never does any good. Why? He finally demands, willing the fists he doesn't have to pound surfaces that aren't there. I've tried explaining it all before, how a soul torn from the body it was born into, a soul like mine, leeches away into the void. How taking up residence in a new body helps slow the leak down to a trickle. How that isn't enough. How I would burn away to nothing without the replenishing energies of new souls, shucked from their bodies like oysters. But there are disadvantages to that kind of honesty, and what David needs to hear is something more straightforward. I was hungry, I answer, then rub my temple as rage erupts inside my brain. I commute David's consciousness back into blackness and soundlessness. It's easier that way, and he probably won't want to see what happens next. I remember, David informs me some time later. It happened fast, but I remember. You cut my throat and bled me like a pig, and you, you reached into my mind and drew me out like you were drinking me up with a straw. I let out a curse he can't hear. I'd made progress on David's carcass, but was nowhere near finished. He shouldn't have been able to reassert his consciousness so quickly. I'm sorry, I tell him, once I'd given him my hearing. I don't need to speak aloud to make myself heard to my meals, but I've learned the hard way that communicating through thought has a way of giving my meals ideas, usually along the lines that they aren't the only consciousness trapped inside my skull. I have to live there, too, and the roots I've grown are too deep for an easy retreat. You're sorry? I'm sorry you remember, I clarify. Most of the time, no one does. It took practice, but there was an anesthesiologist I met in Brussels once, and he... What did you do? He cuts me off. Why aren't I dead? I consider the question as my bone saw makes its way through his humerus. The simple version? I ate you. What does that mean, you ate me? When I'm feeling cruel, I sometimes tell my meals exactly what's in store for them. How little time they have left. At the moment I am not feeling especially cruel. I absorbed your consciousness at the exact moment your body died, and now you exist inside my mind. I'm here forever? With you? David's words explode in my head, harder than I am accustomed to. I could have let you go completely, I say defensively. Let your memories, your thoughts, all of you, just slip away. Because you killed me. Yes, fine. Focus on that part. I start on his shoulder with the chop knife, but a sudden stab of anger from David makes me slip and nick my index finger on the blade. Without thinking, I stick my finger in my mouth. An amateur mistake. His blood, my blood, our shared body, at exactly the wrong moment. David can see again. I shove his consciousness back, but the damage is done. What was that? Nothing. Was that my body? No. Are you dismembering my body? David makes quite a racket for a while, to the point that I have to stop working and pinch the bridge of my nose with my thumb and forefinger. I could stop him, of course, dropkick his consciousness into my hypothalamus, or wreak various forms of psychic havoc upon his mind. But I let him holler. It's better, I find, to let meals tire themselves out. So, you're doing what? Disposing of evidence? David finally splutters. You're going to dump pieces of me into the Gowanus? Yes, that's what I'm going to do, I lie. Then, guiltily, after a moment or two. Well, no. Actually, nothing like that at all. The galette I make from David's shoulder and kidney turns out better than I expected. The bay leaf helps. I haven't always eaten my meals' bodies along with their minds, but it helps with digestion. Another lesson from my former captor I was reluctant to adopt at first. But it's a kindness, at the end of the day. The soul finds rest more readily when reunited with the body. Choke on it, David snarls when I let him smell his chuck meat, sautéing in butter and garlic. Have it your way, I say as I withdraw the aroma, disappointed. My meals have usually sunk to a state of delirium by this point. The anesthesiologist I'd mentioned to David had begged for a taste of his own shank braised in chardonnay and thyme. But David's wits have remained more or less intact. Troubling. It could be worse, you know, I tell him. The man who killed me forced my body through a rotary meat grinder, then ate it. He made me watch, too. This happened to you? David asks, suddenly curious. I wonder what part of you I'll cook next, I say, trying to change the subject. I have a recipe for smothered liver and scallion, but, you know, it's been done. David is undeterred. How did you get your body back? Oh, David, this isn't my body. Not the one I started with, anyway. That body died ages ago. David considers this. Will I be like you? He finally asks. There is a line between frankness and downright imprudence. For my freedom... I'd killed the man who imprisoned my soul, filled his pockets with bars of gold bullion he'd traveled with. Then slep-walked him off the deck of the RMS Mauritania. I'd assumed I would drown along with him until my consciousness burst out into the world and seized upon a nineteen-year-old girl working in the ship's galley. She hadn't had time to do more than cry out before I devoured what was inside and filled up every last crevice of her being with my own soul. It happened so quickly, I can't even remember deciding to do it at all. Could David break free of me? Possibly. Of course, it's far more likely that his consciousness will melt into its constituent parts— and that I will bathe in the puddle he leaves before drinking him up. Which reminds me. Pancreas, I tell him, with nutmeg and cilantro. I give David space. I can do little else. After eight or nine days, my meal's thoughts are usually transparent to me. But all I can catch from David are wisps here and there. He seems to be fixating on things like potassium channels, peripheral axons, somatic neurons. His work, I assume. I feel oddly excluded. I've grown to crave the intimacy that comes when a meal's warmest, truest self is mine to hold and wrap around my mind like a blanket. In the hope of breaking down his barriers... I dine on the center cut of David's belly for breakfast. Sausage lined with his intestines for lunch and slabs of his back and buttocks for dinner. I finish the last of him within the week, but David's soul remains resolutely undigested. I am at a dinner party chatting with one of New York Post's food critics, "'about Marcus Samuelson's newest restaurant. "'When she shouts my name and lunges for me. "'Though the critic is in her mid-fifties, "'it takes three other guests to pry her fingers from my throat. "'For their benefit, I make a show of coughing. "'Didn't know I could do that, did you?' "'David says as the look of triumph vacates the woman's face "'and turns to bewilderment. I do now, I tell David silently, smoothing my clothes and waving off the other guests. Thank you for keeping me up to date on your progress. I keep my own thoughts guarded, in case David's learned to hear more than I mean him to. This changes everything. Even at the height of my own insurrection, I'd never been able to do what David had just done. That was a little more than troubling. I think I'll do it again, David says, as the guests restrain the woman. I wouldn't, I warn him. One of the other guests, or possibly our host, wrenches his head towards me, spewing obscenities and grabbing his own crotch hard, I make David feel a thousand spidery legs beneath the skin he doesn't have, and it's enough to sever the connection. Or perhaps David can only sustain the effect for a moment or two. The man David had caught hold of reaches for his neck, as though he's just suffered a twisted nerve, then doubles over from the pain shooting up from his groin. I slip out while I still can and tell David he's making a mistake, His last chance, I tell myself. Though part of me thrills to wonder what he'll do next. I don't have to wait long to find out. A slight man in a gray suit walking up Amsterdam Avenue swerves into my path and punches me in the mouth. I don't bother feigning surprise or pain this time. The malice flees the man's face a moment later, and he runs away, cradling his hand. I was right. David can only keep hold of another body for the space of a breath. I give him a mental backhand that should leave him discombobulated for an hour or two, then take my phone from my purse and scroll down to a number I keep for occasions such as this. When David starts to come to, I'm in the dimly lit suite at the Carlisle, standing in front of a mirror in a green silk robe. There are three things you should know, I tell my reflection, untying the sash of my robe. The first is that I've made some improvements to this body during the time I've lived in it. You'll find it's quite difficult to damage permanently, or even temporarily. The second thing is that while it's very capable of registering pain, I don't actually have to feel it myself one of the perks of living in a body that isn't yours. "'What did you do to me?' David moans, his faculties returning to him. "'The third thing, and this is the one that really matters,' I say silently, as the door to my suite creaks open and a man in expensive leather clothes and boots stalks into the room. "'I can make you feel it instead. "'I don't. "'The usual,' I say, "'turning to the man and allowing my robe to pool at my ankles. "'An hour or so later, "'the welts and burns on my skin are already beginning to fade. "'Other, more inventive traumas "'will take a little longer to correct themselves.' but my body will be tabula rasa by morning. Do we have an understanding? I asked after the door shuts behind my accomplice. I feel David quivering in shock and pain in the recesses of my mind. Why don't you just kill me? He asks bitterly as I pull my robe back over my shoulders. Because I'd miss you. "'I tell him, and I'm a little surprised to realize I mean it. "'I will miss him, "'when he's nothing but a soup of disembodied memories "'with no will or cognition threading them together. "'Of course, it's not exactly a truthful answer to his question. "'Since the moment his soul slid down my gullet, "'I've done little but try to extinguish his fire.' I'm beginning to wonder if I even can. David may be all but indigestible, but that does not mean I have lost my appetite. If anything, my hunger is all the sharper for his presence. I've never had two meals inside me before. The idea used to strike me as greedy, but now it seems a deliciously decadent prospect. David might even appreciate the company. Hitting the town? David sneers as I apply a shade of peach lipstick I'd been meaning to try. "'None of your business,' I say. Then give him a gentle push into the chasm of my hippocampus. He'll have a devil of a time climbing out of there without my help, and I don't need any distractions when I'm hunting.' She's a couple years older than David, pretty with glossy black hair and lean, defined shoulders. I wonder fleetingly if David would find her attractive, then decide I don't care. She is my meal, not his. Crown Heights? You're kidding, right? I live three blocks from here. Andrea laughs when I suggest a car service back to Brooklyn from Henrietta Hudson where i had managed to peel her away from her friends. None of whom, I was more or less sure, had gotten too good a look at my face. Of course you do, I say, kissing her on the mouth to mask my disappointment. Making love is an indispensable first step to a meal, but disposing of a body on unfamiliar premises was too great a risk. This isn't what I came for, but with any luck I'll lure her into the butchers within the week, and there were less pleasant ways to pass the night. I'm lying with my face at Andrea's navel when whiteness bursts from behind my eyes. David, I think, before the second blow comes, not from within, I realize belatedly, "'Andrea bashes me in the head with the heavy ceramic lamp "'from her nightstand a third time, "'connecting hard with my temple. "'Heal from this,' she snarls, "'hoisting the lamp above her head "'and swinging it down against my skull. "'The room goes dark as the lamp's electrical cord "'unplugs from the wall. "'Concussions I can deal with. "'A cracked skull is a different story.' and that's exactly what I'll have if David continues his assault. I lob a double handful of pain and panic in his general direction, easily ten times what I'd hit him with the night of the dinner party. Some of it lands, but not nearly as much as I'd intended. He's learned to bob and weave inside my head. And how to hold sway over other bodies for longer than a few seconds, apparently. Don't. I say, my lips slower than they would be under better circumstances. I'll kill you, David roars through Andrea, swinging the lamp from my knee. The ceramic shatters this time, and the blow itself sends me to the floor. You'll kill her, I tell David, giving up on physical speech. And yourself if you don't stop. I don't know if he believes me, or if the effort of holding on to Andrea's mind is simply too much for him. But I feel the connection snap. Andrea tumbles to the floor, shrieking and scrambling back from me. "'Get out,' I slur, reaching for the brass footboard of her bed and pulling myself to my knees. For a precious moment after Andrea slams the door to her apartment, I think my troubles have subsided, if only temporarily.' "'Andrea might call the police. "'But I have a bigger problem on my hands, "'a problem that will require creativity "'and perhaps a certain degree of ruthlessness to solve. "'David must have living family, after all.' "'That's when the real attack comes. "'You've been throwing me around your brain for a while now,' "'David says, his thoughts biting into mine. "'I've gotten to know the neighborhood.' and it just so happens I know what a cerebellum does. The left side of my body goes numb. The brass bed-frame slips from my fingers and connects hard with my jaw as I collapse. I can ignore the most exquisite agonies with the proper preparation, but David's blows are arriving too quickly, too close upon each other for me to find my bearings. I sense him taking me over, Nerve by nerve. The feeling stirs a horrifyingly familiar memory from years ago. Only now I am on the other side of it. Not like this, I plead. Not yet. I'm not finished. I don't know what that means, David tells me, delivering an avalanche of pain that sends me staggering back. And I don't care. In fact, "'I just got an idea.' "'I find myself on my feet, loping towards the window, "'the glass spiderwebs from the impact of my skull. "'I try to turn away, but David seizes control, "'hurling my shoulder into the cracked window. "'I have no idea if this will work,' he tells me, "'lacerating my palms against the jagged glass, "'forcing me out onto the fire escape. "'But I hope it hurts.' I step off the platform into an empty space. For an instant, I recall tumbling backward off the Mauritania, the surge of elation I felt as I watched the rail disappear from my field of vision. I'd been sure I was moments from death. Fear and pain rush to a climax as my spine and the back of my skull shatter against the pavement. Then they dissipate. My mind is still as a pool in a forest, undisturbed by a beating heart or the crackle of nerves. I watch, intrigued, as the organ of my brain shuts down and my consciousness floats free of it. The chill of nothingness gnaws at me, but for the time being, I persist. It isn't pain that I feel when David breaks free of me, not exactly, without a cage of flesh and bone to contain him. It had only been the membranous skin of my soul keeping him inside me. It should hurt, what he's doing. That much I know. Yet I feel strangely, blessedly, anesthetized. That's you, isn't it, Solmaz? "'David says as he circles my soul like a fish in an aquarium. "'You're still here, aren't you?' "'As if on cue, my lungs gasp for air. "'Spasms of life work their way through my body for the first time in minutes. "'You can't say I didn't warn you,' I say, "'my energy's thrumming through the air "'as they reestablish their connection to my broken frame.' David's naked soul screams in frustration and launches itself into the night sky. Untethered to my mind, he can streak through the air like a demon. I follow, conserving my power and holding tight to my body with a single tendril of energy. David, stop! I call out to him before he can put too much distance between us. You'll burn yourself out. I'm not going back. He zigzags between skyscrapers, growing thinner by the second. No, I suppose not, I concede, rushing ahead to cut him off. David spins away from me and dives down an alley, then up through the ventilation duct of a brick low-rise. He must already know the choice he's facing. He's fighting a battle of attrition against the void and losing... It's only a matter of time before he dissolves like a clump of sugar in water. Unless... You have to find a body, I tell him, following him through the vents until he collapses, barely a shred of himself. A new one. No, he says weakly. He understands without asking what I mean. "'The press of humanity surrounding us smells like a feast. "'I'm surprised he's managed to resist this long. "'You'll die if you don't,' I tell him. "'And I wouldn't want that. "'I don't care what you want. You—' "'David darts blindly between the sleeping bodies of the apartment complex, "'no longer able to manage language, "'or perhaps just lacking the strength to make himself heard.' He flails pitifully, discharging more and more of himself into the nothingness. I feel my own body beckoning me back. Its connection to me is elastic, but it will break if I stay by David's side any longer. I'm leaving, I say, as if it were a choice. As I spring back, I add, maybe it will be easier with no one watching. Three months later, David kicks the door of my Upper East Side apartment off its hinges. I never returned to Abir's Halal Meats, not even after I finished convalescing from the fall. The hole in my soul from which David escaped took longer to close than I expected, and I'm beginning to think it will never completely heal. David, you look well, I tell him. Well-nourished is what I mean, of course. He understands and seems to hate me all the more for it. His body is lean and youthful and shimmers with power. He hasn't gone this long without a meal or three. Somaz, he says coldly, you can go to hell. If you'd wanted this to be something like a fair fight, you should have found me sooner. I won't hold back. I warn him. I don't think he would be too difficult to handle. Not with the decades of experience I have over him. But I've underestimated David before. It's not a mistake, I intend to repeat. I'm not looking for a fair fight, he says. He paces like a tiger through my living room, wandering away from the defensive position I've staked out. "'Answers, then?' I sigh. "'What can I tell you? You know what I know.' "'I don't believe that for a second. he growls. "'There are tricks I have up my sleeve that you haven't learned yet,' I say. "'But what are we? What we do to survive? "'There's no better education than what I've already given you.' "'David makes a rude noise, but says nothing.' He looks, strangely enough, preoccupied. I cock my head, a thought occurring to me. You have someone in there with you now, haven't you? Shut up. You do. I nearly clap my hands together in glee. You'll be sure to give them my regards when they're conscious, won't you? Or are they listening now? I said shut up. David takes a menacing step in my direction, and I hold up my hands in mock surrender. None of my business, that's fair. But for what it's worth, I'm happy for you. I'd tell you to find your own territory, but we're not really hunting the same prey, are we? The despair that flits across David's face tells me everything I need to know. A disembodied soul can enter anybody it needs to, and reduce the previous inhabitant's soul to cinders. But a soul bound by flesh? No. David's already discovered that physical intimacy is unavoidable when husking a soul from its body. God only knew how many homeless men and junkies had paid the price for that bit of wisdom. The hunger, David finally says, looking at me questioningly. There's no other way? You could starve, I tell him. I went that route once or twice in the early days. I can't say I recommend it. The consequences were regrettable. David turns his back on me and punches my wall, leaving a misshapen brown hole where once there had been tastefully distressed trellis wallpaper. Keep that up and I'm sending you the bill, I say light heartedly. Not that you should have too many worries on that front. Learn to use the gifts you've been given, and the world isn't a difficult place for us to thrive in. Thank you for your answers, David says, still facing away from me and leaning against the wall, strangely calm. But like I said, I didn't come here for a fair fight. The gun, a nine-millimeter, is out of his jacket pocket before I realize he's reached for it. I tense, preparing to close the distance between us or take a bullet, trying. But David isn't aiming at me. The shot reverberates through the apartment as David's second body drops to the floor. He leaves behind a bloody pollock of brains and skull against my wall, and for an instant I am too shocked to do anything. Too late, I understand it's the instant David needs. I throw up protective walls around my mind, but all I succeed in doing is sealing the icy hot substance of David's soul in. I howl pain, clong uselessly at my scalp. "'You petulant brat!' I scream at him mentally. "'You had a body. You didn't need mine!' Out of the corner of my eye I see the effervescent puffs of David's most recent meal fading away into the air. It's good to be right, I suppose. Is that what you think I'm doing, taking your body? David laughs, wrapping long fiery bands of himself around me. The recent wound in my soul burns hotter than the rest of me. David concentrates his attack there, I try to escape, to rip myself free of the body I'd spent the better part of a century in, but he won't let me out. It's a suicidal move. By the time he's finished with me, there'll be too little of David left to survive. Maybe that's the point. It doesn't matter. I don't have time to reason with him. I could throw David's stratagem back in his face. I crawl for the gun lying by his body. If he wants to fight soul to soul, I'll oblige him. The revolver clicks impotently. One round in the chamber. That was all David had brought. Inches of soft masking tape protect the metal handle. I shouldn't be surprised. He's a fast learner. I toss the gun aside and force myself to my feet, searching for something, anything I can use to crack open the shell of my skull and make an escape. David's burning away faster than ever before, but he'll take me with him. I only have seconds. And as quickly as it began, the attack ends. I breathe hard, shallow breaths, scanning the room with all my senses as David's soul beats a retreat. Call it a stalemate, he says, whipping around the apartment in search of an exit. You can keep your miserable life, and I'll go on with mine. I steady myself against the glass table in my living room before standing. My first thought is that I'll miss this place. But with a kicked-in door, a corpse, and a discharged firearm in my living room, I don't have much of a choice but to abandon it. Stalemate, I say, finding my voice. I call it a victory. After everything you've gone through, everything you tried to do to me, you still want to live. Like me. There's nothing you have to say to me now, because the truth is you'd have eaten you too. And we both know it. David's hatred is oven-hot against my skin, but brief as he rushes past me and through the unhinged door. No doubt moments away from tearing into a member of my co-op. One more reason to vacate the premises sooner rather than later? I don't imagine I'll see David any time soon, though. He had one card to play and he just played it and no matter what face he's wearing, I'll see him coming. Good to know, in case I meet another of our kind someday. Another of our kind. Not for the first time, I contemplate the possibility that my predecessor is still alive, hiding behind unfamiliar eyes, perhaps even tracking my progress. It's been long enough, That if he'd been after revenge, he would have taken it, or died trying. Perhaps he isn't interested in such things. Perhaps he feels for me what I feel for David, bemusement, affection, maybe just a modicum of respect. For the briefest of moments I try to summon up sympathy for the man I left at the bottom of the sea. I try, and I fail. Maybe this is all inescapable. The devoured hating the devourer, always and forever. That hatred is our birthright, the one part of ourselves that doesn't change no matter how far we've come, how much we change. In any event... I'm absolutely famished.
1: That was Sam Schreiber's Viscera, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That's why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she just heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. As always, thank you, Josie. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our host, Stephen Kilpatrick, editor Scott Silk, and associate editors Seth Williams and me, Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Licey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial no-derivatives license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.